Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Help Side Basketball Coaching Strategy and Analytics Podcast. My name is John Jansen. I'm the host and we have a lot to talk about today. Basketball season's in full swing. The NBA's in full swing and there is no shortage of things to talk about as basketball starts to take center stage as football kind of comes towards its end. There's a lot going on. Um, today, we're going to talk about the news going on in the NBA and a little about college basketball. We're also going to talk about coaching leadership and being the right kind of teammate to your players on and off the court. And in the strategy session, we're going to talk about two things. We're going to hit on something that I talked about in a previous podcast with with uh, bluff and recovering that I saw in a Laker game last night. And then we're going to talk about closing out on potential shooters and the way I like to do that for my own teams. So we got a lot to talk about today, so let's get right into it. I'm going to start first with, we'll start for a second with college basketball. Um, Obviously, Zion Williamson is taking college basketball by storm. He is ridiculously athletic. He seems like a combination of LeBron James and Blake Griffin. He's just so powerful around the rim. He can shoot the ball and he's just a bully on the court. I think Duke's the best team in the country. I think that they have the best chance of winning the national championship. But what I wanted to talk about was the rankings and how silly and interesting rankings are in pretty much all sports. Duke was number one. They lost to Gonzaga. Gonzaga took over as number one. I get that. I think that's smart. But when you have a team, when you have teams moving up and down the rankings based on other teams losing, to me it makes no sense. And I think that early in the season there should be a lot of shuffling around of the rankings because before the season, you're, all the people that, that rank teams are just guessing. But as the season goes on, you can see how teams are doing in general. But I think it's so ridiculous to drop a team down or bump a team up because other teams lose. So case in point is Gonzaga. And yes, they play some good teams in, the, in their non-league conference, or in, excuse me, in their non-league games. But as soon as they get to their conference... They're basically going to win every game. Maybe St. Mary's will give them a test. Maybe BYU will give them a test. But in general, they're going to win almost all their games. So what's going to happen is you're going to see the Dukes, the Kansas, the Michigans play these tough road games or tough you know, two road games in three days in hostile environments where it's the team's national championship every time they walk in the gym. And of course, they're going to lose some. And Gonzaga is going to play a bunch of low-level Division One schools and keep on winning. And so Duke loses, they drop. Gonzaga just beats a terrible team. So because they didn't lose, they move up. To me, it's silly. To me, it's a lot of it is, you know, spots. And people who really follow sports know that there's just spots where you're on a, you know, in college, not necessarily a back-to-back, 
but you're just going to a place that's really hard to play or you know you see it in college football all the time where there's like oh this one's going to be a tough spot you know they have a, a huge game the next week they're going in a tough environment during a night game you know on the road and these are just spots where you're bound to lose a game and just because you lose by three on you know late in a really tough road game that doesn't mean you're worse than you were when the game started just because you lost doesn't mean you're any better or any worse than you were and the analogy i wanted to make was to tom brady and and what happened this weekend and also what happened that super bowl a few years ago where Tom Brady's legacy gets changed for the better while he stood on the sideline. And we saw it last night where it went against him, or yesterday, where it went against him, and Miami pulls off this miracle lateral play and comes down and wins the game, and Tom Brady gets a loss on his record. Well, he wasn't even on the field. He didn't miss that field goal that his kicker missed. You know, there's all these these circumstances that aren't even affected that can't excuse me that Tom Brady can't even affect and his legacy and his ranking is determined by it and we go back to that Super Bowl with Seattle a couple years ago where they threw that interception on the one yard line and Tom Brady wins his fifth Super Bowl Tom Brady should be four and one in Super Bowls or or whatever the case may be but because of a terrible play call by Seattle possibly the worst play call in the history of football Tom Brady gets a win while he stood there on the sideline. And now his ranking, his legacy is even higher, but he didn't do anything different. He was still the same guy before that play. He's the same exact guy after that play. Nothing he did changed. And in the in the short term, one game does not change how good you are or aren't. Yes, maybe you could say that a team has found a weakness or something like that. But in general, you're just going out there and playing a game. As good as your team works together or doesn't work together, doesn't change in those 40 minutes of a college basketball game or or whatever, 32 if you're a high school coach. So it's interesting seeing, you know, how I think Kansas is of the power teams, I think one of the most overrated teams in the country. And they just slid back up to first because Gonzaga loses to Tennessee. Now, Gonzaga had a great win against Duke. But it was just a win against Duke in in basically a tournament early in the season where Gonzaga has juniors and seniors for the most part, and Duke has freshmen for the most part. So the team that has more veteran players early in the season is going to have a big advantage in a neutral side game. So do I think that in March, Duke will be the better team? No doubt. And do I think that if Gonzaga played in the ACC, they would be a middle to bottom level team? For sure I do. And I just think it's silly to change rankings based on a one-game sample size. If overall a team is not as good, sure, move them around. But having a number one team drop to three or four and and everyone slides up because they lose a road game, to me, is just kind of silly. And I don't know how important it is, but at the same time, when you're getting these wins against ranked opponents, it really helps or hurts your resume trying to get into March Madness. So it definitely matters. And if you have a rank uh, win against a number one ranked team or a top five ranked team, that's a huge deal. And when a team like not only Gonzaga, but other teams that just kind of move up because their conference is 
either weak or super top heavy and they can just beat up on all the on the worst teams it kind of skews those rankings in my opinion getting to the nba there's a lot to talk about and obviously as a west coast guy and a laker fan um, a couple things i'm going to talk about have to do with the lakers and the first thing i want to talk about was a game i saw sunday night excuse me last night monday night as the lakers played the miami heat and I saw something that I talked about earlier in one of my podcasts, and I was literally yelling at the TV. And I don't think Lonzo Ball's an, a very good defender, but he just made an egregious mistake late in a game that obviously didn't cost the Lakers the game because they still won. But it's just a mistake you can't make. And we had talked about bluffing when you close out on a two, in a 2-3 zone scenario and the ball goes to the wing and you close out and you jump to in the lane in front of the corner guy so he can't make that pass and it freezes that guy for a second while your defender rotates over. Well, it was a similar but a little different scenario uh, for Lonzo last night. So I think the Miami might have been on a break. We're in the fourth quarter, probably three minutes to go. I think the Lakers were up by three. And Dwayne Wade has the ball, and Justice Winslow is in the corner. And Lonzo closes out to Wade. Maybe the ball got passed or skipped across, and someone was out of position. So both of those guys were open. And Lonzo closes out to the ball, which was Dwayne Wade. And he jumps over in the middle perfectly and actually kind of leaves Dwayne Wade standing there by himself because he's more worried about Winslow who had already hit a bunch of threes and was having a good game now Dwayne Wade was having a good game too but Dwayne Wade was doing all of his damage in the paint with little floaters and getting the free throw line and whatnot and and I don't remember him making any three-pointers so Lonzo closes out and then jumps in the lane perfectly like he should and kind of stands over in front of Winslow and kind of leaves Dwayne Wade open And in my opinion, at no point did Dwayne Wade look like he wanted to shoot the ball. And Lonzo was actually standing right in between the two of them. So there was no way that he could make that little five-foot pass over to Winslow for a three. And it seemed like the game froze. And everyone was just standing there watching and waiting to see what would happen. And because there was this frozen moment where nothing was happening, Lonzo had this perfect position because had Dwayne Wade risen up to shoot, Lonzo could have contested it, and I think you take your chances right there with Dwayne Wade, who's a terrible three-point shooter at this point in his career, and been fine. And if he makes it, he makes it. You're playing the percentages. But because Wade held the ball for probably a second or two, Lonzo started creeping over closer towards him. And as soon as he got to a certain point, Wade made a little quick pass over to Winslow, and Winslow buries the three. And to me, it's that whole thing that I talked about, where you're standing in between, so he can't make that pass to the shooter. And in my opinion, the the worst case scenario there is Wade drives, but there's, you know, with only one guy guarding two, that means there's four guys back behind in help. And he made the wrong play. And part of it is personnel. And part of it is knowing that bluff and recover thing that we talked about. And so it doesn't only apply for zone defense, it applies for everything. And you have to be able to know the scenario and know that Winslow's not only a good three-point shooter or maybe not a good three-point shooter, but better than Dwayne Wade and know that he's already hit some in the game. And, And even if you don't know that, 
you know these guys' history and you know who's going to be more likely to make the shot. So he had started in the great position. I was like, I was like, I even said I was, you know, I was watching with some friends. I was like, oh, it's perfect. And then he just sneaks over, and it's just an easy pass and a wide open three for Winslow. And it was so frustrating because there's no way that that mistake should have been made that late in the game, and there's no way that he thought that was the right move because. In my opinion, looking watching the game, it didn't look like Dwayne Wade was lining up a three at all. He was just kind of standing there waiting to see what Lonzo did, and and by waiting, it I don't know if it made Lonzo uncomfortable or or what, but Lonzo left that great position of in between in that perfect bluff position and allowed Winslow to hit that three. So I just thought it was interesting because it wasn't a zone scenario, but it's this that same move um, that we had talked about and. Uh, you see a professional doing it incorrectly. And, you know, on a side note, as I watch games, I'm always kind of coaching, not necessarily out loud because that's obnoxious, but what I'm saying is I'm, I'm watching the game as a coach, and hopefully you are too. And sometimes it actually ruins the game for me because if you watch it as a coach, you're seeing things that you like and don't like. And sometimes I lose just the pure enjoyment of watching a basketball game because I'm I'm sitting there watching as a coach or, you know, if I'm rooting for a team and I see the way they're playing, I'm just sitting there going, Oh man, we're in trouble, you know? Um, but hopefully in general, if you're watching games, you're watching as a coach and, and if you're not watching games, you really should be because there's so much to learn out there from other coaches. And like I said, you can really hone your skills as a coach by putting yourself on the sideline as you're watching and from either perspective, offense or defense, look for things that teams are doing right and especially look for team for things that teams are doing wrong. And if you can see what a team's game plan seems to be, let's say they, they're switching, right? Then you kind of watch every switch and see if they're switching and jumping to the ball or, or see if uh, the other team is exposing them by, by switching on to a guy who can't guard somebody. Things like that, just little nuanced things that happen throughout a game that once a team has kind of given you their strategy for the game, you can kind of see how they're executing it and see what the, what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. So that always can help you become a better coach, especially if you're an assistant coach and you don't get to, you know, make some of these in-game calls. Well, you can sit at home on your couch and watch and, and, and yell out, do this, do that. I mean, you could seriously, seriously put the game on mute and yell out loud the, the calls you would make as a head coach and just kind of practice that and see if you feel like what you're saying is correct and and see what, what the other what the other coach is doing and what the, the coach that you're replacing is doing. So there's always chances for learning even when you're watching games on TV. A couple other newsworthy things. Uh, one was Melo going to the Lakers. That came out and it just makes me so sad. I just don't understand, like, unless LeBron James wants a friend to hang out with because the Lakers are young. I mean, I think I heard that somewhere. I don't even remember. Other than that, it's just so useless. I mean, he was so bad for OKC. Then he comes out and says, I'm starting the next year. And then he goes to Houston, and Houston is horrific with him. They cut him. And then you go back and look at OKC, who really didn't add anybody. They just subtracted him. And they're way, they have the second best record in the league. And I know it's early. I think we're 25 games in or so. But I've been saying this for years that Melo's done. And 
these guys always want to recycle these older guys, and at some point, you just you gotta you gotta move on, and you gotta give somebody else the opportunity to develop. And I just think it would be such a step back for the Lakers if Melo came in. And now, in the last 24, 48 hours, they're talking about Ariza, which I think would be great. I don't know whose minutes he was gonna he would take because it seems like they like having. Lonzo on the court they like having Kuzma on the court who's playing great and I know Josh Hart is playing that other spot and so I I think Ariza could take those minutes but when Rondo comes back it's going to be really interesting because and when Ingram comes back also it's going to be interesting to see how those minutes work out because Ariza is a veteran player who demands minutes and can knock down a three so he's definitely going to be on the court so sometimes you can ruin a little bit of chemistry that the Lakers seem to be building, but at the same time, in the long term, the depth he would add and the shooting he would add, I think would be really beneficial for the Lakers. The last thing I want to talk about, I know this is a heavy, mellow podcast so far, is the Hall of Fame and people talking about whether Mellow should be in or not. And I know I'm thinking of him the last few years but I think the Hall of Fame needs to be the best of the best of the best. And you see all these guys now and you're like, yep, he's Hall of Famer. 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 And you're like, all right, wait a minute here. Let's just take this easy because it's not supposed to be an all-star team. You know, It's not supposed to be the, the, the top half of the all-stars every year. You know, That's not Hall of Fame. That's just a good all-star or a really, really good player. But Hall of Fame is supposed to be the best of the best of the best. And I think you have to take into account some of the things that Melo did throughout his career that aren't necessarily reflective in statistics. And I know when he was on Denver, he wanted to go to New York. And if I remember correctly, he demanded a trade when he was going to be a free agent a few months later. And the Knicks ended up having to trade a bunch of their really good assets to get him. And then it became mellow by himself with a bunch of okay players. And to me, that was a really, really selfish play. And then on top of that, he's had almost zero success in the playoffs. They had the one year where they're like they were the three seed in the East. And other than that, they've been awful, missing the playoffs over and over and over. And then he goes to OKC with two other quote-unquote Hall of Fame caliber players, and they were worse than the year before. They're out in the first round. And then he goes to Houston, a team that's loaded, and he's cut after 10 games or 9 games or whatever. And I know this is the end of his career, but I think sometimes guys who don't get hurt and play for a really long time and throw up gaudy numbers are just automatically given Hall of Fame credentials or Hall of Fame consideration when, in my opinion, they may not deserve it because I think that the Hall of Fame needs to be the best of the best of the best. The Hall of Fame should be, you know, three or four players a generation. Not, I mean, if you started counting off Hall of Fame NBA players right now in the NBA, I bet people, I bet you could easily list off 10 that people would potentially consider to be in the NBA from just current players right now. 
And that's not Hall of Fame. That's all-star team. And you can't tell me that we just happen to be in an era with nothing but Hall of Fame players because that's just not realistic. You know, it was really interesting a couple weeks ago when Jerry Rice came out and said that he doesn't think that Eli Manning should be in the Hall of Fame. And I tend to agree with him. Eli Manning's record, and I know I talked earlier about how record is affected by your defense and whatnot, but I mean, how good is Eli Manning? The two times they won the Super Bowl, they were a wild card. He has a plus three record. He's been awful for like the last four or five years. And I think even, you know, similarly, you look at someone like Phillip Rivers, and it seems like, you know, someone said to me a few years ago, all you have to do to get your jersey retired in today's day and age is just stay on the same team for your whole career, right? Because so many guys are moving from team to team now that if you just stay for your whole career, and especially if you're healthy and, you know, you're a good guy, you're getting your jersey retired, And Udonis Haslam was like an example of that. He was never a great player. I don't know how many times he made the all-star team, if any. He's just been a nice player, but he played for 20 years for the Miami Heat, and they're going to retire his jersey. And I think sometimes with the Hall of Fame, if you are a good player or very good player, and you have a long career without injury like Phillip Rivers, like Eli Manning, then your numbers are just going to compile And being above average or very good for a really long time doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. It just means you're a guy that was the team could count on to be there every week and you're a good player. And I think that sometimes the Hall of Fame needs to be a little more selective because it should be the most exclusive thing. And when you start letting everybody in, then it kind of devalues it a little bit. And I'm not sure where I stand on Mello yet, but I'm leaning towards not a Hall of Famer just because of that reason. You know, he was just a guy who played for a really long time and scored a lot of points. And he never was known for defense or rebounding or passing the ball. He never really did well in the playoffs. His team never really had high seeds except for one year. So, and I think it's different in basketball. You know, it's not the same as comparing basketball and football because I, Look, I understand that your teammates matter. I totally understand that more than anyone around. But you're 20% of the team and you play both both ways. So a Hall of Famer can affect a game much more in basketball than any other sport. So in that, resp- in that respect, he kind of loses points for not being able to do more um, as far as winning both during the regular season and in the playoffs. So I want to talk now. I want to move on now. And talk about a little bit of leadership and and uh, from a coaching perspective, and I'm talking about not on the court. And I've just run into a lot of coaches that think everything's about them. And the younger the players are that you coach, the more they are going to draw on every word and take in everything you say as you know scripture. I know that. Like if you think about little kids, if they get a foul, sometimes they'll burst into tears or if they get yelled at, they burst into tears because all they want to do is please the coach or everything, like every game is life and death because they're so young and emotional, they don't understand that most of their games don't even matter. I mean, to be honest, until you're a high school varsity player, there's pretty much no records really of your games even, you know, counting in the long history of basketball. 
You know, you're never going to go online and find your JV stats from when you, you know, from your sophomore and junior years or whatever. So the younger the, of the kids that you're coaching, the more that you say and do um, will, will stay with them for a long time. And even up to the college level where I coach, I think that these guys still look up to you. They, you're still kind of their hero a little bit. You've still gone where they want to go. And they're going to hang on everything you on everything you say, and more importantly, everything you do, your actions, your, the things you don't say. And I really have seen it the other way. And as a head coach, I make sure to put my players before me off the court, even in just little small ways, in ways they probably may not notice, but I think subconsciously they'll remember. So like an easy example is, if we're going to get something to eat, I'm always going to be the last one to eat. Every time. I'm going to order last. I'm going to make sure my food comes out last. If somebody needs some, you know, if somebody's done and they're still hungry, I'm going to give them food off my plate every single time. You know, if if there's anything I can do, if, you know, if I'm getting up to refill a drink and, I, and one of my players, I'm taking his drink, I'm just going to try to be selfless because the guys appreciate that. It shows that you care about them. When you're talking and you say, I need to do this, or I need to do that, that's the way your players are going to talk. They're going to they're gonna mimic what you do in a lot of things. And if you so, show any kind of selfishness, or you sh- show them that an individual is imp- more important, and that individual, you, is more important, then they're going to remember it, they're going to have it in their brain, and, it's, and even subconsciously, they're going to start acting that way. I mean, we've all seen as coaches, players start using the phrases we use. They, they, you know, they look forward to seeing you. They're, they're really excited when you say hello to them. Like you become their big brother, you, you become their uncle, you become their father figure. And we all know that we use the same phrases our father uses or our mother or whatever. And it's the same situation. And every little thing that you do and say, they're making a note of. And They'll, I mean, look, we, I bet, I bet many of you notice where if you'll say something a month later, your, one of your players will be like, wait a minute, but that one time you said this or that, and then they, and they, and they feel like, you know, you're being dishonest with them or you're saying something different, or even if they're just remembering something that you said that was positive, that everything you say, they're measuring and they're taking down and it's affecting their lives. You know, I talk a lot about evolving and every time you have an interaction with a player, he's going to evolve just a little bit in some way, maybe a positive way, maybe a negative way, whatever. If you're hard on him or if you really get on him for making this mistake, hopefully he's going to evolve and remember that and not make that mistake. If a player makes a mistake and you're, and you say, it's okay, you tried, he's also going to evolve and realize that him making that mistake is okay. And I'm not saying be hard on your players. What I'm saying is every interaction you have with every single player, every word that you speak, every nonverbal communication that you have is going to affect those players and help them evolve in some way. And so it's really important the way you speak to them, the way you don't speak to them, the way your body mannerisms are. You know, if you're if one of your players misses a bunch of threes in a row, if you start slumping your shoulders on the sideline, they're going to notice. And maybe not him, but maybe a guy on the bench. And now when that guy on the bench saw your shoulder slump, he's going to be thinking about that. And he goes in, he misses a three. He might look over and see if your shoulders are slumped because he saw you do it to somebody else. And so you had taught him that, that you are upset or you are giving up a little bit in some way. 
and I've done it. I'm not going to sit here and say that I haven't, but I know it's things that I still need to work on and we all need to work on. I mean, none of us want to lose. And if we're, if we're in the middle of a tough game and something happens in a negative way, I mean, it's human nature. I mean, the best coaches in the world, you can see them drop their heads sometimes or, or become a little disappointed in one of their players. It's human nature. But the less you do that, the better it is because these guys are noticing everything. And like I said, the younger they are, the more they notice. And that's why, you know, at a younger age, everyone says, be positive, be positive, be positive, because they're the most impressionable at that age. And as the players get older and more mature and you start weeding out some of the players, then, of course, you can get away with more things. And and those guys are going to be a little tougher and have a little thicker skin. But in general, they're going to evolve from every single thing you say and do. And you have to make sure that you measure every single thing you say and every single thing you do because you don't know which thing is going to affect this one player in some positive or negative way. And if you can affect them in a positive way, that could change their life. That could change their career. You know, I talk to guys a lot and, you know, uh, it's from a movie, this quote that I love. And it says, and the quote goes, every second that passes is a chance to turn it all around. And I love that quote. And I say it to my players all the time. If you're a bad student, starting right now, you can become a good student. Starting right now from this moment, you can go home and study and become a great student. If you're a talented player with no work ethic, starting right now, you can go go shoot 500 shots every night. You can go to the gym every morning and get a workout in and get a basketball workout in. Starting right now, whatever you're doing wrong, you can change right now. Every second that passes, a chance to turn it all around. It's such a great line. And I love saying it to my players because I'm hoping that one of them, that it hits right in the heart. And they go, okay, right now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start changing. And even guys who are bad guys, you know, criminals, uh, guys who have drug problems or whatever, right now is the, the moment you say, nope, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change right now. All right, not right now, right now. You know, like it's always every second you can turn it all around. As a coach... If you're not putting in the prep work, right now you can change it. Right absolutely now, listening to the end of this podcast, you can change it right now. That's why that's such a great quote because it, it's it's real. And it. I want to get to the strategy session now. And what I want to talk about is closing out against a guy with the ball. And I've talked about it before, about how we want to close out. And I want to talk a little bit about when the guy already has the ball and it appears as if he's going to shoot. I've seen this taught both ways. And I actually started teaching it when I became a head coach. And the more I've thought about it, the more I don't like the way I've taught it. And I think part of the reason I taught it the way I did is because I really respect the coach that taught me the way I've been teaching it. And I'm going to obviously talk to you about the two ways that you can close out when someone you think someone's going to shoot. Number 1, you can close out and you can fly by. Hold on, let me just reiterate. There may be more than two ways, but for me there's two ways. Number 1 is a flyby where you run by and you jump at the ball side at the hand so you don't hit the guy so you never foul him. And this coach that I coached coached for, his philosophy was it's really hard to make a one dribble pull-up jumper, number one. Number two, most of the time the guy is going to take that dribble in and 
turn a three into a long two. And like I said, it's hard for him to make that shot. And I understand that philosophy, and that's the one that I was teaching to my players. And before that, I had always been a guy that says, close out and be ready for the drive. And a lot of times, guys would shoot the ball right in my guy's face because when they're closing out, they're coming in low, they're getting their hands up, but they're ready on their toes for that drive. And then what I would teach is, and if you see them rise up, then you just reach your hand and contest without jumping. And I think I changed because I respected that coach so much and because I saw in games that guys would take that one dribble pull up and he would cheer no matter what. Even if they made the shot, even if they took the one dribble in and made the shot, he would say, good job. The problem is that I think guys will take that as the easy way out, number one. They'll just go run and fly by a guy, and now they're out of the play because it's easier than than closing out. And they'll just say, well, I thought he was going to shoot it. And maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. The second thing I don't like about it is you're assuming that that guy is only going to take one dribble and shoot. And that's not always the case. And if he doesn't, you're putting your defense in a four-on-five situation, which isn't the end of the world, but it's not a great scenario. And a good team is going to make a good player is going to drive and take what the defense gives him. And that may be going all the way to the lane. That may be kicking out for another kick for a wide open three. But I think smaller than usual, a smaller percentage of the time than usual, is that guy just going to take that one dribble and shoot that long too because it's a tough shot. And a lot of guys are much better at probing or getting into the paint, maybe shooting a small floater or you know, making some kind of move, getting to the rim, getting a foul, et cetera, et cetera. And you're putting your team into a tough scenario where you're playing this five on four. And especially if this guy is like a point guard or a playmaker, then he's going to make something positive happen in that scenario a lot of the time. So I like closing out, being ready for the drive. And I think, like I've said before, I think that's the hardest thing to do in basketball is close out when a guy is going to be dribbling right at you because your momentum is going one way, his momentum is going the other way. And it's so hard to get your, to change your, the direction of your body without fouling. And obviously he has two directions he can go. So it's just a really tough thing. And I work on it a ton with my teams because I know how hard it is. And if you can do it, it's great because inevitably Inevitably, someone on the other team is going to drive by your player and someone's going to have to help and guys are going to drop into help side and there's going to be a kick and your guy's going to have to close out and then he's going to kick it and another guy's going to have to close out. And if you can have one of those closeouts, stymie that guy. Now everyone resets and now the shot clock's down and you're in a great position. And I know from teams that I've coached before where we did it that direction, that way, it's so great because you've just stopped everything they're doing. And they basically have to start all over again to try to get that edge that they had. And sometimes they're going to shoot it in your face and hopefully your guy can get a hand up. But usually he's going to be pretty low because he's going to be preparing for a drive. So a lot of times that closeout isn't going to be great. Excuse me, that contest isn't going to be great because he's going to be low and maybe that contest just gets to his face. But sometimes he's going to get there and make a great closeout. And sometimes they're going to make that shot. But I think overall, the thinking I've done over the last you know, off season, I believe that 
the right way to do it is to close. And maybe if I was a Division One coach where the guys are great shooters, maybe that isn't even the way it works anymore. But at this point, I think that that's the way to do it. And I think especially at the high school level, and look, again, we're talking personnel. We're talking, you know, the level you're coaching at. Because if the guy is, you know, especially at the high school level, when one, one, excuse me, when one player can dominate a game, sometimes you might have to just say, get this guy off the three-point line. And maybe, you know, and I'm not saying I wouldn't do that. I'm not saying that I won't coach against a team and have them have this knockdown, you know, 55% three-point shooter that I said, I don't care. Get him off the line, make him a driver because he's not good at that or that evil is less than him shooting. But in general, I want my guys to close out without jumping, without flying by and give ourselves a great opportunity to reset their offense and put ourselves in a great position to make them take a bad shot down the stretch. So this is something that you have to think about for yourself. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you which way is right and which way is wrong. And it's something you can look at in your film and see, okay, you know, it'd be really easy, especially the later you get into a season or as soon as this season ends, go back, look through your film and look at your closeouts. And you could even just mark down, you know, good shot or bad shot for the other team or, you know, paint, you know, you it's the, the more analytical you want to get, the better it is for you. But you could say something like, other team, like we ended up fouling, they got a great paint shot, they got a wide open shot, they took a bad shot, you know, we got to stop, etc. Make up a list and then just kind of watch your film. And you only are watching for scenarios where that when that happens. And if you're completely on a, you know, flyby coaching philosophy, then just kind of look at those percentages when your guys fly by. And see if those percentages are higher or lower than the, than the opponent's regular percentages. And if they're lower, then continue to do that. And if they're higher, then maybe you know start to think about doing something else. And a lot of, a lot of teams are going to have both scenarios happen because sometimes you're going to close out and not just jump because the guy just caught the ball and just kind of watch and see how the possession goes after that. Because I find when you make a great closeout and all of a sudden that guy who thought you were, who, who just pump faked and then you closed out and now boom, he's lost his advantage. I bet you get a stop on a lot of those possessions because it just puts them back on their heels. You've totally reset and now they have to start all over again with less time on the shot clock. And that's to me, one of the most ideal situations. So take a look at that or, or think about it and think about your team and watch it on TV too, you know? And again, when you're watching NBA level or high division one level, consider how good those players are when you start thinking about it, because that doesn't necessarily translate to the level you're, you may or may not be coaching at. So you got to think about all those things when you're, when you're taking all that stuff into consideration. Anyway, that's all we have for today. If you want to make a suggestion for something, for a topic for me to talk about, no matter what it is, basketball related, strategy related, whatever the case may be, you can find me on Twitter. You can tweet at me. You can send me a message on Instagram. I am have a public profile. It's not really a basketball profile. My Twitter is more basketball oriented, and I would love to you know talk about something that people want to talk about. Uh, you know, I try to do some research for this podcast and come up with interesting things to talk about because, you know, some of the stuff is 
monotonous probably as far as coaching. And, you know, I, I want to keep this somewhat entertaining. So if you're, there's something, a topic that you have in your team, you know, something I may not be experiencing, then, you know, shoot me a message and I'd love to talk about it. And, uh, and we'll just keep this thing, you know, hopefully as, hopefully with good content that you guys like. And hopefully if some people have some suggestions and we can, uh, talk about some different topics that maybe I'm not even thinking that, that people want to talk about. So send me a message. That'd be awesome. And, uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.